Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. One thing that I've learned, uh, this is from my graduate students and, and hanging out with computer programmers, is that when somebody is creating an AI algorithm, for example, they will program specifically program noise into the system. And the idea is that if you're putting a computer on a machine learning task, you don't want it to get stuck in a local minimum. As in, you know, it comes up with a solution and it's like, oh, this is a good solution, but yet there's a better solution just over that, that next uh, energetic hurdle, you know, and it's, it's an even better one. So if you make the road bumpy, you know, if there's a little bit of, if there's a little rut in the road, you know, we might fall into that rut, but then the road's bumpy enough that we bump out of that. And then we find the bigger rut, the one that's actually a, a, a useful uh, solution, so to speak. In this episode, we sit down once again with Dr. Judd Brewer, who has, since his last appearance on the show, written and published a book which is now a New York Times bestseller titled Unwinding Anxiety. Dr. Judd is the Director of Research and Innovation at the Mindfulness Center and Associate Professor in Behavioral and Social Sciences at the School of Public Health and Psychiatry at the Medical School at Brown University. He's also a research affiliate at MIT, and his bona fides go on and on from there. He's a psychiatrist and an expert in mindfulness, addiction, and anxiety, and a lot more. And he's specialized himself in creating and curating mindfulness programs for behavioral change. And that's what his new book is about. In fact, the full title is Unwinding Anxiety, New Science Shows How to Break the Cycles of Worry and Fear to Heal Your Mind. And that is what we will be talking about in this episode. Follow Dr. Judd on Twitter at Judd Brewer, that's J-U-D- B-R-E-W-E-R, and listen to him right now after this intro music. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 218. When you are anxious, you feel vulnerable, or whatever, you, pre- you pretend like you aren't to yourself. To the to the point to the point where like I'm fooling me into thinking I'm not anxious, but I sure am doing a lot of stuff like overeating, or smoking, or making poor choices, playing video games and procrastinating instead of working on anything that I should be doing. That kind of stuff. I was doing all that stuff, and I didn't realize how much of it I was doing. And even more so, even here recently, like talking about working on like that manuscript. 
as soon as that was out of my life, I stopped doing a lot of weird stuff that I hadn't noticed I was doing. I just want to jump in there because I like that you start the book talking about, hey, I did this too. What in the hell? Like I, I can be anxious and not know it. I can be doing bad things and not know the source of those things. It seems like with anxiety, you'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm anxious. I don't feel good. But I can lie to myself about this. Just tell me something. I, help, help, help me make, make, this, make this make sense to me. Yeah. You know, this is how smart our brains are. You know, our brains are really good at saying, hey, I've got this. I'll take care of this. Don't even think about it. You know, in fact, don't even be aware of it. I'll, I'll just do all this work in the background and, and kind of take care of things. And then those, of course, catch up with us 20 years down the road. You know, it's like our uh, our brain has been, you know, buying us stuff on, on a credit card with high interest rate. <laughs> and we get the bill later and we're like, brain, what did you buy? <laughs> you know? That makes that. Okay. These, this is why I love talking to you because I, I'm like those that, that species in Star Trek that only spoke in, um, in metaphors and uh, and uh, common phrases. Basically, they were meme lords of a plant of a certain planet, and Picard had to re- understand what their memes meant. Um, uh, so, when you put things in metaphorical terms, I get it. This credit card thing, I understand immediately. Uh, yeah, I, I paid the price. I didn't realize it until I had some more bandwidth to take a look at it, and then I actually did the thing that men should do, which is I went to therapy, and the therapist was mean to me a little bit, but in that loving way, I was like, you know, you're like full of shit. I was like, somebody needed to tell me that, and uh, <laughs> it helped. <laughs> it helped a lot. I guess uh, I'm assuming people have already listened to the previous episode, but probably some people haven't. So who are you and what do you do? Who am I? Let's do it. Let's go. That is the question. Let's get it. Uh, <laughs> so my, my name is Judd Brewer. I'm an addiction psychiatrist and a neuroscientist. I'm the director of research and innovation at Brown University's Mindfulness Center. I'm an associate professor in behavioral and social sciences in the School of Public Health there and in psychiatry and the uh, School of Medicine. I'm also the executive medical director of behavioral health at ShareCare. Wow. Okay. Well, I... That sound uh, like narcissistic. <laughs> <laughs> I asked. That's very a very impressive uh, resume. A lot of bona fides, uh, and I trust you completely on all these topics. And the book is funny. You start right off the bat. You say, "I have a note." Was it uh, in this? This is a real quote from an actual book written by a scientist. In this book, I have scienced the shit out of anxiety, <laughs> which I appreciate because a lot you're right, you you break the fourth wall right off the bat, saying a lot of books like this just uh, I mean basically they're a lot of filler and um, or they get to a point where like you realize they they came up they realized they had written the they had an idea for a book and they they blew it all in the first chapter and then they need to say something else now to justify you having bought the book like <laughs> the first chapter was all they had it was really a medium post and they got a book deal out of it uh that's not this this thing has got like 23 chapters full of stuff and it never stops coming at you um and it starts out with this story about how you were anxious and didn't realize it tell us a story judd what was happening to you like uh how what was ma- how was it manifesting inside of your life and behavior and what got you to like pay attention to it yeah it was it was showing up in my in my guts literally you know i'd done a lot of backpacking in college and was always afraid of getting this uh bacterial infection called giardia that you get if you don't purify your water carefully enough and it in my senior year i would i was getting bloating and cramping and i won't go into the details of my gi distress 
but I went to the the student health and said, you know, Hey, I think I have jarditis. And, and the doctor's like, well, do you think you could be stressed? And I was like, no, I'm not stressed. You know, I, better, I run, I'm vegetarian. I play the violin. Blah, blah, blah. And he's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and then lo and behold, mm-hmm. I had, you know, I had irritable bowel syndrome, which I, you know, I was like, oh, it, it, I, it didn't even dawn on me that I could be a stress case because I, you know, I was compartmentalizing it so much to the point where my compartments were getting a little, um, let's just say uh, my compartments <laughs> let me know <laughs> that I was stressed. Wow. My compartments were letting me know. Uh, well, I'm going to throw some things out there and we're going to talk about them, but I want to sort of introduce them. I'm looking at my notes over here. When you don't know that you're anxious or when the anxiety is sort of hiding from consciousness, it hides when it hides from consciousness, it hides in our bad habits. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can also hide in our bodies as we attempt to disconnect from these feelings uh, at the conscious salient level. And I think that also something, uh, uh, and these are just things I'm throwing up so we can talk about them, but there's a, a sense I know that I've had this since before too, that anxiety has to be a disorder. It has to be uh, something that someone is labeled as having an anxiety disorder or uh, some, some sort of, some sort of conditions, sort of chronic thing. But COVID times sort of uh, busted that as a myth because um, there's a lot of anxiety out there. I don't, I know you didn't plan this. I know you weren't part of a conspiracy. I hope to make a New York Times bestseller come out exactly you know, a book to come out exactly when we needed it, but I'm glad you did. And um, I want to get into it, sort of starting there. This idea that it it can hide, it can hide in our bad habits. And what do you mean by that? Uh, I know we've sort of brushed against it, but I would like to hear more about it. Yeah, well, I'll start by saying, you know, these these conditions, you know, I, those were basically set up for billing purposes. You know, so <laughs> psychiatrists could bill people, you know, and say, oh, I did something. Uh, I like to think of there's a condition that we all have, you know, it's called the human condition. Mm. And in that respect, we all, you know, we all get anxious and that's what can lead us to these, these bad habits. But I want to highlight that because I think a lot of people blame themselves or feel like they're deficient or feel like there's something wrong with them Mm. because of this societal nomenclature that was set up, you know, for billing purposes only really, (laughs) you know, that like, oh, there's something wrong with you. So what I'd, I'd love for folks to really start rethinking is like, oh, well, this is the human condition. You know, this is something that we all do. And this is just our survival brain trying to help us out. And it kind of got off track a little bit. And one of the ways to get at your question, one of the ways that it gets off track is, you know, it's it's set up to help us kind of avoid things that are unpleasant, that are in, based on danger. You know, it's like there's danger, we run away and we learn not to go back to that dangerous spot. Well, the same is true in modern day where that mechanism is in play, where if there's some unpleasant emotion that we have, or uh, let's say anxiety, for example, the feeling of anxiety is not very pleasant. And what our brain says, Ooh, that's not bad. Let me, you know, let's get, let's go buy you something, which literally we could do because that's one way that we cope with anxiety, especially when we're in front of a computer and we have access to one click buying, you know, on, on different platforms. Uh Uh So our brain says, Hey, you know, let's distract you from that unpleasantness. Let's go buy something. Mm -hmm. And then we get that, that jolt of excitement because we just ordered something and it's going to show up in, you know, these platforms are great. It's going to show up in 24 hours or 23 hours. If you order right now, I have all of this. I have a, yeah. I have, I have a, a wooden, a, a nice wooden watch. Uh, I have a 
a, a little pencil case for the modern man uh, that has a that opens up like this and you can put stuff in it, but it also charge your phone on top of it. These are uh, things that I bought over COVID. Uh, and, uh, because I, you needed them, right? You needed a wooden watch? I, I, it, was, it seemed important at the time. It, it, it kept me from thinking about my deadline. Uh, and so it did, I, I didn't think about, about my deadline, but now I don't want to wear it. So here we are. Uh, <laughs> I like the, the watch, especially because it's, it's something that has to do with time and your deadline. <laughs> That's even better. <laughs> this is, uh, this feels Freudian and I'm going to, uh, and I, I expect to be billed for this conversation. Uh, the, I feel you that, well, let me interject, uh, but I don't, I don't want to lose the arc of that, but the, I, I, I guess I'm not having asked this question, which is, um, I mean, what is anxiety? Like, it feels like something we shouldn't have evolved to do. This doesn't seem useful. Uh, fear seems useful, and yeah. avoiding danger seems useful. Worrying all the time about something doesn't seem as useful. What's going on? Yeah, it's it's a mashup of two survival mechanisms, kind of an old ancient one and a more modern one. So the ancient one is that fear thing. You know, fear is helpful, always been helpful. If something, you know, if you step out into a busy street because you're checking out your new wooden watch uh, or, what, or whatever, <laughs> uh, and you're not looking both ways, and then you almost get hit by a car, that fear, when you jump back onto the sidewalk and you have that fear reaction, it it teaches you, hey, you know, stop looking at your watch or your smartphone or whatever we're doing these days when we're not paying attention and pay attention so you don't get hit, right? That's That's helpful. The other survival mechanism that is also helpful is the more modern one, the prefrontal cortex, you know, which is involved in thinking and planning so that we can plan for the future. That's helpful, right? But then when you mash the two together, mm -hmm. so the prefrontal cortex, it takes previous scenarios and then it simulates the future based on them, right? So if we know exactly what we had for breakfast yesterday and it was good and we know we can wake up this morning, we can say, I know exactly, I'm going to plan for my breakfast this morning, you know, it, and it basically reduces that uncertainty to zero. It's, it's, so we can do it as a, as a routine. We know exactly where the coffee is. We know, you know, all of those things. So that's helpful in terms of helping our brains not have to kind of rethink and relearn and rediscover our daily routines every day because they're not dangerous. And it's, it's good to be able to put those into habit formation. I think of it as set and forget, you know, you set mm. the habit you forget about the details. So the problem is when you bring these two together. Okay. So when there, when the more uncertain the future is, the more our brain has to make do different simulations to try to say, well, what if this, or what if this, or what if this now that's, that's okay. It takes a little more work. But the problem is when you add fear to that equation, okay? Okay. And well, so I'm, instead yeah. of the what if, it says, oh, no, what if? Oh, no, what if? Oh, no. And we kind of sprinkle a little bit of fear onto that, that prefrontal cortex. And then suddenly we've got anxiety. The problem there is that that makes it, 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 the irony is that our prefrontal cortex goes offline when we're anxious, you know, when we're, when we're afraid, because it's really moving into survival mode and saying, you know, don't think, just do like, get out of the way. So when we get stuck in doing that, that you think of it as fear plus uncertainty equals anxiety, right? Um, that anxiety is not helping us plan for the future. It's not helping us survive. There's, 
There have been no studies. So despite uh, popular memes on the internet, and we should probably talk about this at some point because there's a ton of misinformation okay. on surprise on the that. internet um, <laughs> about, you know, like helpful anxiety, like the, you know, these inverted U-shaped curves of anxiety and performance and all of that. N none of that's actually true. <laughs> they, there is a pretty clear correlation between anxiety and performance and it's inverse. The more anxious we are, the worse we perform. There's no optimal anxiety because anxiety makes it harder for us to actually perform. You know, if you, if you look at the opposite of anxiety, like when somebody's in flow, you know, when they're totally in the zone, they're not anxious at all and they're performing their best. So mm -hmm. there's, there's, a, there's a corollary of that. But long story short, if you think of anxiety, it's this fear plus uncertainty. And it's, you know, you can think of the definitions, you know, where it's this feeling of, of unease, of worry, you know, about something, basically about something in the future, right? It's it's fear of the future is one way that I like to think of it. I like that. that. That's good. Fear of the future. So you have a prefrontal cortex that among many other things it does, it's simulating possible future scenarios, possible outcomes hopefully to, we can plan and, and arrange our life to avoid those outcomes. Okay. I'm just trying to repeat this. And so I understand it. So the, the, then, um, then some of these outcomes are very, you're very afraid of what might happen. And this puts you into a, a state of mind where the prefrontal cortex goes, I'm going to take a, a little back seat here because we're kind of getting fight or flight about this, which then makes it harder for you to do the things that would accomplish not being afraid of that future. And the result of that is now there's more stuff to be worried about. And so you worry more and you start to get into a feedback loop. Is this about on the right track? Yes. And then, yes. and that we previous conversation, we called this the, the black, the crossing the event horizon of the anxiety black hole, which is one of my favorite things. And I've said that to a lot of people. Uh, uh, and so thank you. But like, I see where like a little bit of this is sort of manageable, or at least it, it doesn't disrupt our lives enough to notice, but there's a spot where that loop can go over like an edge where you will uh, procrastinate to the point of ruining the project and not turning it in. You will, um, uh, you will abdicate responsibility in your relationship to the point where you destroy the relationship. You can, uh, you can create a terrible outcome from trying, from worrying about creating terrible outcomes. Am I in the right spot there? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. I know there's really no answer to this, but it seems like this is something that would have like been um, taken care of by natural selection. But apparently uh, what's um, how, why does this persist within us? If it calls, it can cause so many problems. What do you think about that? Yeah. So I can give you some, some baseless speculations and BS. My favorite. Yes, please. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> one thing that I've learned, uh, this is from my graduate students and, and hanging out with computer programmers is that when somebody is creating an AI algorithm, for example, they will program specifically program noise into the system. And the idea is that if you're putting a computer on a machine learning task, you don't want it to get stuck in a local minimum. As in, you know, it comes up with a solution and it's like, oh, this is a good solution. But yet there's a better solution just over that, that next uh, energetic hurdle, you know, and it's, it's an even better one. So if you make the road bumpy, you know, if there's a little bit of, if there's a little rut in the road, you know, we might 
fall into that rut, but then the road's bumpy enough that we bump out of that. And then we find the bigger rut, the one that's actually a, a, a useful uh, solution, so to speak. So uh, my guess, my baseless speculation is that, you know, fear is helpful. It's good, good solution. Planning for the future is helpful, good solution. But when you mash those two together, we've hit some local minimum mm. where both of those are kind of trying to work to help us survive. Yet they're kind of they're kind of stuck, <laughs> you know, where where they hit this resonant frequency where they're they're actually destroying it. You know, do you ever learn about resonant frequencies in a car? Like there's some resonant frequency where you'll mm-hmm. the car will like shake itself apart. And right, so right. they set the engine to shift gears right at that point so you won't shake your car apart. Mm-hmm. So we've got this resonant frequency of anxiety uh, that we're just kind of, you know, kind of shakes us apart and it's hard to shake because it falls into that negative reinforcement paradigm. And what I mean by that is that the, so the feeling of worry, that physical feeling of anxiety doesn't feel good, but the mental behavior, the mental act of worrying is rewarding. This is yeah, so, that's, this is so that's weird. the kicker. This is so weird. And you, you spend a lot of time explaining this in the book because it's so, it takes a little bit of, um, you have to hold a couple of ideas in your head at once for this to make sense. And it's counterintuitive and it's challenging in a lot of ways too. Cause like, um, it doesn't feel rewarding to be, to be, to worry about stuff. But, um, but there is sort of a stepwise thing where you, where you can reinforce the, the, the uh the worry well tell tell us explain you explain it i will not explain it what am i doing you tell me you explain (laughs) yeah so if we don't have control over a situation which is probably more of the time than we'd like to admit you know our it, it feels uncomfortable not to have control and so our brain says well i'm gonna at least do something and that doing something feels better than just sitting there and being out of control you know so that doing something comes in the form of, of worrying or with some of the pandemic habits that we've seen, procrastinating, online shopping, Netflix, binging, eating food, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? For sure. I, I, I will interrupt only to say uh, there's never been a, a more like we're all in this together feeling, I think, than somewhere there's like a three-month period where uh, we, were, we weren't learning new instruments, <laughs> we weren't reading books. We all just kind of went, and I, maybe it didn't line up for everybody, but everybody did have a little phase where that happened. So even if you aren't a chronic worrier or you don't have, uh, you've never sought any kind of a help for anxiety issues, you have tasted the, the bitter poison of this thing. We all got to at least, we know we can, there's an empathy that we can now feel for others. I feel like, um, that we may not have been, had access to before all this, please continue. Yeah. Well, I was going to say, you know, examples of that, you know, what were the memes like the quarantine 15, where people will gain 15 pounds, which they had to update to the quarantine 30 because the <laughs> pandemic kept going on and on and yeah. on. <laughs> you know, there's just one example where we sometimes literally taste this where, you know, we're working from home, we're feeling anxious and we just we start wandering toward or being pulled toward the kitchen because, you know, it's like, I want something. I don't know what I want. We're not hungry. And what we want is to mask the feeling of anxiety. Hmm. You know, I had a patient who said she used to binge eat pretty significantly. And she said that she would binge to numb herself from her Hmm. negative emotions. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I've seen a lot of over the past year and a half. 
uh, and you even say in the book, I don't have it in front of me, but you say something along the lines of, this is something you find that's harder to get across to people, or, or people get this incorrect a lot, or that it's difficult for you to get them to go, you, you, you want to shake them by the lapels on this one, This um, that worrying is rewarding, or, or this uh, anxiety-reducing behavior becomes its own reward that it sort of hijacks the whole system and makes it more complicated, if you could talk about that. Yeah. So basically we can think of, we can ask ourselves, well, what's the worrying doing? So typically it's set up. It, it tells us that, you know, well, if I think of all the worst case scenarios, maybe I'll be prepared or maybe, you know, if I worry, I'm going to keep my family members safe, pretty magical thinking, mm. you know, because worrying doesn't, <laughs> doesn't influence, you know, if our, if our child's out uh, driving at the age of 16 for the first time with their, you know, with their buddies, us sitting at home worrying about whether they're safe or not is not going to actually make them safer. Mm -hmm. And certainly we do not want to be calling them <laughs> on the phone while they're driving to see if they're safe. Probably not, mm -hmm. not such a good idea either. So that worry, you know, it, it comes across as this great idea, like, Oh, maybe it'll keep my family member safe or it'll solve the problem or whatever. But worrying, like, like we meant, talked about earlier, Worrying actually makes it harder for us to think and plan. So worrying about worst case scenarios doesn't equal planning for or preparing us mm. for worst case scenarios. But one thing it does is it zaps our energy. It's kind of like, you know, an engine where, you know, the, the fear is like getting into first gear. It, you know, moves us along quickly. Worry is like putting in the clutch and slamming on the gas. And so we redline the engine. We're not going anywhere, but mm -hmm. we certainly are preparing for meltdown. Mm -hmm. Well, this is a good takeaway. Worrying ain't planning, and it but it feels like it a lot of the times. Like it feels like I am con doing something constructive because I, at least I have my mind on the problem. Yeah, uh, it doesn't feel like I'm avoiding the problem when I'm worrying about the problem. But I'm not. If I'm hearing you correctly, it's not getting anything done. It's not like adding uh, weight to the scales of getting this out of my life or doing a positive thing. I'm on the right track. Yes. Yeah. And, and somebody says, well, I feel like worrying is helpful because I've had a lot of people come to me and say, what? You know, but I say, well, just compare worrying to planning. Like when you're calm and you're collected, mm. what helps you think of more scenarios? Because when we're worried, we're kind of closed down, we're contracted, we're not, we're in this fixed mindset where you know we're just constantly stuck in that one beat of like this is bad, this is bad, this is bad, repeat, this is bad, this is bad, this is bad. You know, there could be bad repeat. Whereas planning helps us say, okay, what do I need to think about for the future? It's completely different. It feels <laughs> completely different. The the open mindset, think of it as being in growth mindset when we're open to thinking of all the scenarios so that we, that's what actually helps us plan. Mm. Worrying just gets us stuck in that same rut over and over and over. That's what perseveration is all about. We're just constantly worrying that something might happen. I like that word, by the way, because it's hard to say. Perseveration. What, what would you say is the definition? What is the hardcore definition of that? Perseveration is just basically repeated thinking. And so it tends to come in two flavors, you know, uh, perseverating where we're repeatedly thinking of, and it's usually having to do with the story of us. Right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so when we're thinking about ourselves in the past and regretting things that we've done or thinking about how bad our life has been, that tends to fall into the category of rumination mm -hmm. and, you know, depression. And when we're perseverating or constantly worrying about the future, that's where anxiety comes in. And now we take a break from our program for a word from our sponsors. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If our time was unlimited, how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? What is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S. So you want to make better decisions and you have a business. You have a business and you want to make better decisions in that business. You need some sort of key performance indicators, a system for measuring what you're up to, what you're doing, measurable values that demonstrate how effectively your company is achieving your key business objectives. That's a KPI. And I have a recommendation for you. It's called NetSuite. You should be using NetSuite. Here's here's why. So your business gets to a certain size and the cracks start to emerge. Every business that's doing well, even if it's just starting to kind of do well, it'll start to form some fissures here and there. Things you used to do in a day will start taking a week and you'll have all sorts of manual processes that just there's too many. You can't get to everything. And you don't have one source of truth to make sense of it all, to make those better decisions. If that's you, you should know about three numbers. These are three numbers you should know. 37,000, 25, and 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. That's a big number. 37,000. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system. Streaming accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, and more. 25. NetSuite turns 25 this year. 25? 25 years? 25 years of helping businesses do more with less. 
close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs, and won. Because your business is one of a kind. You don't want some sort of operation or app that's just made for whoever comes along. No, you get a customized solution for creating those KPIs that you need. One efficient system with one source of truth made for one business, your business. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need to grow, all in one place. When you have everything you need in one place, all these biases, all these fallacies that I talk about on this program, it's an incredible way to apply everything you learn about making better decisions by having one source from which to pull your evidence, your information. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance for nothing, absolutely free. You just go to netsuite.com slash not so smart. You get it for free. That's netsuite.com slash not so smart to get your own KPI checklist. One more time, netsuite.com slash not so smart. And now we return to our program. So you, you write in the book that success is not linked to anxiety, but it can feel that way. This is a false association. And you talked about this whole weird memeified thing floating around because we were all so anxious and we're all so meme that we we're talking about helpful anxiety and other forms of, of um talking about anxiety in ways that are not scientific or are not vetted or not supported by the evidence. Tell me a little bit about that. And what is, what are some other, like what's some other forms of misinformation you've seen floating around? Well, the, the one that, that I, I, and I give the full history of this in my book, cause I think it's helpful to have references and to, <laughs> to look at the science. Yeah. So, that was good. And, I, and I think this one really blew up because of the internet. That's my guess. If you look at the, if you trace the history of this. So basically there was a study back in 1908 that was done with Japanese dancing mice. I kid you not. Uh, so, and the, these, uh, these two researchers were doing this work to see if, you know, how much they shocked Japanese dancing mice, if they could get them to perform, you know, in a, in a maze or something like that. Right. So Yerkes and Dodson were the name of these researchers. And basically you think of it, if, if you, if you don't prod the mouse enough, it's like, eh, can't be bothered. Yeah. You know, I'm going to sit here and sleep or eat, eat my mouse chow or whatever. But if you prod it enough, you know, it's like, oh, and then it's so it's like, okay, I'll go do something. And then if you shock it a lot, it's like, oh, you know, it's so shocked that it's like performs worse. So they came up with this inverted U-shaped curve of arousal saying, you know, a certain amount of arousal gets a mouse to go and run through the maze, right? Which makes sense, you know, if, if it's asleep or if it's, if it's traumatized, it's probably not going to do as well. Um, somewhere in the 50s, this famous... Uh, psychologist gave a talk where he kind of started to a, a surmise that maybe that is true for anxiety without any evidence. And then one of his graduate students took this farther and literally did a, a kind of a similar experiment to the Yerkes and Dodson with rats. And instead of shocking them, he put them in water and kind of held their head underwater. And so, you know, it, I know torturing rats in the, in the name of something, um, 
So here he found, you know, if you had held their heads underwater too long, they performed worse. And he said, oh, here's a replication. And this proves that basically anxiety has an inverted U-shaped curve where none of these experiments really were measuring anxiety at at all. Uh, And, you know, people largely ignored this stuff. Yerkes and Dodson were cited maybe 10 times before 1990. But somewhere between 1990 and 2010, we saw this exponential rise in what was now called the Yerkes-Dodson law, Mm. which was that there's this optimal you know, peak of anxiety where a little bit of anxiety doesn't help you, um, you know, the Goldilocks, just the right amount of anxiety is good. And then too much is is not helpful. If you actually look at the research, that's not true mm-hmm. with anxiety. It's, it's not an inverted U-shaped curve. It's, it's an inverse linear correlation. Any amount of anxiety is not good per, for performance, but that didn't stop people from giving, you know, TED talks and writing books about this stuff uh, to the point where I still get, you know, people requesting me to write, you know, reviews about their books for, you know, helpful anxiety. And I just say, I can't do it because mm-hmm. that's just not true. That is, it is perfect for TED talk. It is, it is a beautiful hot take to say, actually, anxiety is good for you. And then they have, you have the u shape thing. And it seems intuitive to the idea that like, okay, yes, I don't want to do something versus and a little bit of encouragement versus being waterboarded. I, I can feel we're on the, the, on the far extreme that will not motivate me. But what you're saying is, first of all, these are, uh, these are people electrocuting Japanese dancing rats and, uh, Furthermore, we have other research involving human beings that shows anxiety. There is no optimal anxiety level. Any anxiety is taking away the power of your uh, prefrontal cortex to get the job done. Is that hearing you correctly? Yeah. And there are two seductive elements there. One is that our brains are really good at making associations, right? My my PhD mentor, uh, Lou Muglia Bank, he really hammered this home for me. He said, you know, there's this true, true, but you have to make sure that there's a causal connection because often there's true, true and unrelated as in I was anxious. It was true. And I performed well. Tr- that's also true. And then our brain makes this causal connection that is mm. false where it says, oh, because I was anxious, I performed well, mm-hmm. but that's just correlation without causation. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a correlation between the two and our brains are like, oh, it must've been true because they were temporarily linked. Mm-hmm. So our brains do that all the time. And so it's easy to make that association. The other piece is that, that it's seductive because it kind of justifies our anxiety. So it feels, you know, it's like, oh, it's okay to have a little bit of anxiety mm. because it's helping me perform or it's help, helping me get this project done or whatever. And so it makes, you know, for folks that are prone to judge themselves or think, it, you know, they shouldn't have anxiety or whatever, this kind of gives that anxiety a badge. And it says, oh, good job. You're being anxious. It's helping you be productive. The nice thing is we can do this experiment ourselves, anybody can look at their own experience and say, okay, you know, if when I did this task and I was anxious, how did that compare to doing that same task and not being anxious, Mm -hmm. especially, you know, if I was curious about the task or I was, you know, I was really into the task. Nobody has, nobody has yet convinced me that anxiety actually helps them do tasks better because anxiety, again, it's like, you know, that engine, just revving that engine and wasting energy. It's, yeah. it's anxiety is, is exhausting. 
Yeah, I, I mean, you know this pretty really well. Like the when you are, when you live by deadlines, there's a mythology around and a culture around deadlines that suggests that you do better work under pressure. You do better work when you see that deadline looming and you see it, you're like, oh no, it's written like, and you know, you cram in the last three or four weeks trying to hit that deadline. You're like, oh, I'm doing my best work, but you're also just doing work. You weren't doing at all beforehand and you have no measure to go by it. You have to run a different experiment where there was no deadline to see how it compares. Uh, I, uh, some of the best things I've ever written were things that I just opened up my laptop on the couch and I, would do, I didn't know why, but I wanted to, to say something uh, funny about uh, an old bookstore that I used to go to that ended up being some of the best writing I'd ever done because there was no one, there's nothing. It was just me and the work. Um, That's flow, right? That's yeah. you being in flow. That's optimal performance. That is a huge insight that in our very bizarre particular culture we live in right now, especially the bizarre work culture we're in. Um, maybe a lot of people don't ever get to experience p true pure flow in their workspaces because there's, if you do knock off one thing off the, off the, off the list, there's 200 more waiting for you. you. Never feel like you're free of the, of the anxiety of the bullet points or anxiety of the, of the checklist, anxiety of the to-do list. So the, there's the multiple deadlines orbiting your brain at all times. Um, you you go to in a lot of stuff. You talk about mapping the mind, mindfulness, certain types of habit formation and change, um, so that we can finally get to. And I love this phrase, anxiety sobriety. Perfect. I wanted that's t-shirt quality stuff there. I love it. Um, I I'm eager to skip ahead and then come back through these because I'm looking at my notes. Something that I just want to hear you talk about before I get into the other stuff is procrastination itself. Um, I see people on Reddit oftentimes try to explain to each other what it is and how it works and sometimes get into the neuroscience of it. You're the actual expert. What, um, what is this thing, procrastination? Why are we so prone to it? And is there like a scientific medical way to kind of outsmart ourselves in this regard? There is. So procrastination is basically, think of negative reinforcement, right? There's a trigger and then there's the behavior that you know the triggers something unpleasant and with in the case of procrastination it's a negative emotion that's typically what triggers procrastination it's not you know because we're feeling good you know um it's typically it, it, so it, scientifically people think about procrastination as an emotion regulation issue it's not time management which is kind of the memeified version of procrastination it's really about emotion regulation and when you look at it from that perspective, it makes a lot of sense. So the negative emotion is the trigger, the behavior is the procrastination. And then the reward from a brain perspective is that we can avoid that negative emotion, mm -hmm. right? And so that, that just gets set up as a habit. That's what feeds back. And it says, okay, next time you have the negative emotion, procrastinate some more. So suddenly mm -hmm. we have a very tidy closet or a very clean bathroom or whatever <laughs> we do to procrastinate. Yet the project deadline, you know, gets looms larger and larger and larger. So that's basically what procrastination is. It's that old survival mechanism that is, uh, you know, put in place in modern day when it comes to trying to regulate our emotions. This is good. This is a good example of everything. The, a, a lot of the things we've talked about already and what your book talks about, because we have in there um, the, the trigger and then what you do. And then, the, then now that's a reward in of itself. And now you have oh no, we're starting to get close to the, to the, the event horizon because when you procrastinate, 
now tomorrow, there by some percentage point, the thing you're avoiding is even more anxiety producing because it's closer. So you have made it even worse for yourself, which encourages you to procrastinate, to avoid it, which you know, because this is the go get some chocolate thought in your head. I well, this will alleviate that feeling temporarily. And then I get this thing and now I'm, and now I'm a, a dumb animal again. So I want to, I, I'm a Australopithecine, not, um, uh, paying attention to the obelisk. That is a deep reference. That's not going to make anyone laugh. Um, the, 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 okay. Like the, I, I, okay. So the, let's talk about strategies to get out of these loops. Um, I, I really like that you start with mapping your mind because it sort of gives me a causal it causes me a causal uh, through line to consider and think about, which often lets me sort of like visualize. Okay, I can think in this way, so because I can pick these points out. So, if you could explain what mapping your mind is and how it can be used in this regard. Yes. So I, well, this is basically you know thinking about the science that you know the research studies that my lab had been doing around habit change for several decades, and then bringing that together with how, you know, how I can efficiently uh, work in a clinical setting where I get twenty minutes to see a patient. Right. Mm, mm. So the the idea is okay. The clock starts ticking as soon as they walk in the door, and I got to get as much done as I can. And what I found was that one, a lot of people have no idea how their own mind works. And the two, if I pull out a pen and paper, and as I'm taking their history and trying to understand what they're struggling with, if I start mapping it out with them, one, they can see that I'm listening, <laughs> which is helpful. Very it's helpful. helpful for psychiatrists to listen to their patients, just saying. Uh, and two, that I'm making sure that I'm following their story. And three, they're starting to see how their mind's working. It's kind of like, you know, we walk around, it's like our mind is this dark room and we're walking around, bumbling around in that dark room, bumping into objects and saying, well, what's that? What's that? Mm -hmm. This mapping is about just flipping on that light switch so we can see, oh, that's mm -hmm. how my mind works. Mm -hmm. And the, the mapping can be as simple as just mapping out that trigger behavior result uh, relationship, you know, where, you know, it's like, what's triggering my behavior? What, what's the result of that behavior? How does that feedback and trigger you know, future behavior. It's that simple. So I start, you know, in my clinic that way uh, with whether it's somebody that's trying to quit smoking or they're having panic attacks or they're overeating or, or just, you know, chronically worrying. It, it's that simple. And anybody can map this out both in terms of unhelpful habits, but also in terms of all the helpful habits we have as well. It's not that all habits are bad. It's just that when they're causing, you know, negative consequences for us, mm -hmm. that's when we, you know, that they come to, they tend to come to see me. <laughs> uh, let me, uh, I've got your book here. Oh, here it is. Trigger behavior reward. This is a, a nice, easy way to, to do it on your own. Anyone listening, the trigger is, well, you go through it, please. Like, uh, what do you, what's, what's a typical trigger and this is, I'm going to think of this a little bit like an anxiety sandwich. So uh, the trigger, then the behavior, the reward, sort of a simple example of this, if you will, and how we could be used to, to help someone. Yeah. And I'll also mention, we, we put together, a, I think the website's just mapmyhabit.com. Oh, yeah, so we yeah. put together a, a free PDF that anybody can download because, you know, just trying to help, help as, you know, little ways that I can. So People can go down and download that and they their instructions and they can print it out and they can do their own mapping. But it, a typical example, we oh, can so use the cool. press. I'm looking yeah. at it right now. This is so nice. Trigger behavior result. 
and you have a beautiful website here. It's, uh, again, if you're trying to get here, this is uh, mapmyhabit.com. There's a button you click on, Download Habit Tracker. It's a PDF, or you can just look at it on the website. It's beautifully uh, designed, easy to understand visually, and lots of letters and words that will make sense when you read them. One, two, three, trigger behavior result. But if you could talk about it briefly. Yeah. So uh, let's use the procrastination as, as an example. So if somebody feels anxious, they think about a deadline that they have, there's the trigger, they could write that down. And then they procrastinate, you know, what do they tend to do? Do they go on Netflix? Do they go to the refrigerator? Do they clean their bathroom? That's the behavior. And then the result is for them to look at the direct result of that behavior, you know, and typically with procrastination, it's okay, I avoided doing the project or I avoided that negative emotion. Another one would be, you know, if somebody is um, uh, stress eating, so stress triggers them to eat, you know, and then that eating helps them numb themselves or avoid those negative emotions. Those are just a couple of examples. You also mentioned um, RAIN, or maybe skipping way ahead here, but I like these acronyms, R-A-I-N, uh, recognizing, accepting, investigating. What is that all about? Yeah. So I think I split the book into kind of three sections. You know, the first section is about how we can map our minds and all the different ways that we can use that as a very simple, helpful technique. The second section is about looking at the how rewarding a behavior is. And then the third section is about helping us find things that are more rewarding. So that RAIN mm. practice falls into the third category where we can find, I call them BBOs, bigger, better offers. So it basically if we uh, if we see how unrewarding an old habit is we naturally start to become disenchanted you know the the fairy dust goes away you know we're less enchanted we're like oh that's not really that great you know mm. eating when i'm stressed just makes me more stressed cuz i you know cuz i'm gaining weight or whatever mm -hmm. that helps us naturally become disenchanted and then we can use uh, awareness practices, basically curiosity and kindness are the two main flavors there that can help us step out of those habit loops. And RAIN is one of those. So RAIN is a nice acronym uh, where we have to recognize, oh, I'm, I'm about to fall into this habit loop, into this local minimum, if you want to think of it that mm. way. And the A is for allow or accept. So typically when there's something that's unpleasant, like a craving, um, we quickly, you know, automatize that or ignore it or, you know, get through it as quickly as possible because it's unpleasant. Well, we have to actually turn toward our experience to work with it. So I think of this saying, the only way out is through, mm. you know, and so if we can allow ourselves or just accept that something is happening that helps us be able to turn toward that experience. The, so that's what the A is, you know, allow it to be there, accept, or at least acknowledge, okay, this is happening. The I is about investigating. And this is my favorite part where it's like, we bring in a boatload of curiosity. And this also helps us turn toward our experience. It's like, oh, what does this feel like? Like I have an urge to go eat some food when I'm anxious. Oh, what does this craving feel like? And we can start getting curious about it and investigating what the sensation actually feels like. The N is that last part of the acronym is for noting. So we note our experience from moment to moment. So if it's a craving, it's like, oh, it's tightness, it's tension, it's burning or whatever. And that noting has a, is kind of a psychological parallel to this observer effect in physics, right? You probably know that when they were trying to measure the mass of electrons back in the day, they would hit these electrons with photons. Um, and what they found was that by hitting an electron with a photon, you're actually going to change its mass. So you have to account for that change. Mm. They called it the observer effect, right? Mm. So by observing, you're affecting the result. 
in psychology, we can do the same thing. So if we're identified with an emotion like worry or a craving or whatever, if we observe it, if we kind of name it, it's like, oh, what are the component elements that, you know, that let me know that I'm anxious, it's tightness, it's tension or whatever. By observing, we're less identified. And so in that way, we can affect the results. And it can help us get a little bit more perspective or a little bit more distance as compared to being totally sucked into and identified with a thought or an emotion. You talk about curiosity uh, and how important that is. And you talk about starting small. And I love that one of the small starts is to you know, just maybe smell the soap in the shower and, and take it in and, uh, and slowly build your curiosity. What is the value of curiosity in all this framework that we're talking about? Well, first I'll highlight there are two types of curiosity that often can get uh, confused with each other. So let's make sure there isn't confusion in there. One is called uh, deprivation curiosity, which is a survival mechanism, you know, because information is kind of food for our brain, right? Information helps us survive. And so if we don't have a piece of information, we're deprived of knowing something. And that deprivation gives us that itch, that urge to go find that piece of information. You know, it could be as simple as, you know, what was that? You know, if we see a television show and we're like, oh, I know that actor, you know, they've been in something else before. And then we go look them up on our phone. That's deprivation curiosity. I think of it as an easy way to remember that is it's kind of destination curiosity. Mm. When we get somewhere that we're not deprived of that information so that itch has been scratched. Mm -hmm. Okay. So it's unpleasant. It's restless. It drives us to get information just like dopamine drives us to get food when we're, when we're hungry or when we're craving something, the other type of curiosity, and this is the type that I think of as a superpower is called interest curiosity. You know, and these had been laid out by Jordan Lippmann and other, other researchers in a very nice way, interest curiosity, instead of the destination, it's about the journey. It's just that joy of discovery. So it feels different than deprivation because it's not an, a restless, itchy quality of experience. It's more of a kind of an open interest. It's like, oh, instead of, oh, no, I got to get this piece of information. It's like, oh, let, you know, wh what am I, what can I learn here? And so there's no real destination in mind. It's really just that joy of learning. And what that does is it helps us turn toward whatever our experience is. So, you know, whether it's just mapping out a habit, like, like saying, so, oh, no, I'm in that habit again, and we're in kind of a fixed mindset, and we're kind of beating ourselves up over it, we can go, oh, there's this habit loop, let me see if I can map it out. And that in itself feels better mm -hmm. than, than like, thinking, oh, no, here I am. And then also in that second step, when we start to look at the, um, the rewards, or, you know, how unrewarding our behavior is, we can get curious, like, oh, what am I actually getting from this? And then curiosity itself can be rewarding because it feels, you know, think of if you just compare anxiety to curiosity or compare worry to curiosity, you know, curiosity feels so much better. It's a no brainer. So just even bringing in that attitude of curiosity helps us right in those moments to feel better because we're right, we're, we're getting curious, we're turning toward our, our experience and that in itself can feel like that bigger, better offer. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's, it's great. Uh, mindfulness, meditation, that whole world of stuff you can do. Um, how does it play into all these strategies for dealing with anxiety? 
Yeah. So I think of mindfulness as, you know, having two elements, right? Awareness, being aware of something, but also having that attitude of curiosity. So instead of being aware of something and, and judging it, like, oh, this sucks, we're bringing awareness in and we're being curious, like, oh, what's happening right now? Mm-hmm. And what that does, that's critical for so much of life from changing habits to just, you know, developing um, helpful habits, you know, mm-hmm. of, of just being, you know, being uh, flexible and being uh, open to change, which is, you know, the, the only thing that's, that's unchanging is change itself, right? Because mm-hmm. life is constantly changing. So if we can set ourselves up to be constantly curious, we're going to be constantly putting ourselves in a growth mindset, you know, think of, you know, our brains are trying to get us into a, um, our, you know, think of it as our safety zone or, or, you know, there, there are different ways of people describing this, but basically our comfort zone is when things are familiar to the point where we can predict, you know, predict them with large degree of accuracy. When we're thrown out of our comfort zone, we can, we typically go into our panic zone because we're so used to being in our comfort zones, especially mm-hmm. in modern day where it's trying to you know, get us to be complacent and, and be comfortable all the time. Uh, so if we can learn to lean into uh, change and see that the, the discomfort that comes with change is just, you know, because our brain is saying, hey, this is unfamiliar. I need to see if there's danger there. If we can bring that attitude of curiosity and bring, be aware of that, it can help us start to live more and more in our growth zone Mm -hmm. where we are constantly learning and growing. And instead of spending our energy worrying or trying to make things not change and trying to make things constant, which we can't do, takes a tremendous amount of energy and it's a, it's a a fraught pursuit. We're never going to be able to do that. Instead, we can learn to make constant change and being in our growth zone, our new comfort zone. And that's what mindfulness helps us do is to be constantly, constantly curious. Well, I want to ask one last question uh, so you can go do other things. Um, uh, and this is a new thing that I've been uh, thinking about asking people who've written really cool books like yours or really difficult projects like this to put together, which a book is, first of all, who do you hope picks, picks up this book? It's a two-part question. Um, who do you hope, who do you hope is the person who picks this book up? And then, what do you hope that that person gets out of this experience of reading it? It's a great question. So I would say, you know, the, the title, you know, unwinding anxiety is there to help anybody that's had anxiety, just understand their mind a little bit more and and be able to work with it. So anybody from, you know, that's just curious about the anxiety that they might have, or that their loved ones might have or whatever, um, to somebody with full-blown, you know, generalized anxiety disorder. So I would say it's, it's meant for a wide audience. And I would also say it's really, you know, buried in there kind of underneath the patina of anxiety is this general idea of how we can work with any habit. Uh, I didn't, I thought it would be too audacious to say, you know, here, here's the actual book on how to, you know, based on 20 years of neuroscience of how to, how to change habits but using the the idea or the what do they say in books the mule that carries the story right <laughs> yeah. uh, using using the mule of anxiety it helps us start to see and identify anxiety in our own lives helps us start to understand and be able to understand others when they're anxious but also helps us get this lens where we can start to identify 
unhelpful habits throughout our lives and also start to form and solidify helpful habits. You know, this isn't just about getting rid of bad things. It's really about tuning into our brains and using this really powerful reward-based learning system to not only kind of flush the system of these unhelpful habits, but also refill the system with helpful habits. So one thing that I would, I would love to see the world do is to wake up and be more curious. I would love to see the world wake up and be more kind, you know, more connected. And I think if we just understand and see how our brains work, this is, this is possible. My lab's done research showing that kindness and curiosity are much more rewarding than divisiveness, than anxiety, than frustration and things like that. So it's, it's really literally built into our DNA. You know, the pandemic was one of those noise generators that, that really shook us out of our, our a bunch of different local minima. You know, and the real question is, are we just going to fall back into those? Are we going to fall into other local minima, you know, around more divisiveness? Or are we going to use this as a way to bring that introspection in like you're talking about to keep that noise up so that we can really see the true solutions are kindness, the true solutions are connection, the true solutions are curiosity. And that's how we're all going to move forward together. And surprise, it's actually more rewarding when we feel like we're all in this together as compared to, you know, my tribe versus your tribe. You know, we're all in the human tribe. That is it for this episode of the You're Not So Smart podcast. To follow Dr. Judd, to find Dr. Judd, just go to drjud.com. That's D-R-J-U-D.com. And you can find out all about what he does beyond this new book, Unwinding Anxiety. See interviews he's done on 60 Minutes and all the articles he's written. Time, Washington Post, Forbes, CNN, Huffington Post, NPR. And uh, get free resources to help deal with anxiety using science before you even get into uh, buying this book, which I recommend that you do. For links to everything that we talked about in this episode, head to youarenotsosmart.com. For all the past episodes, go to Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes, Omni, Spotify, or youarenotsosmart.com. Follow me at David McRaney on Twitter. Follow the show on Twitter at NotSmartBlog. We're also on Facebook slash You Are Not So Smart, about half a million people there. And if you'd like to support this one-person operation, help make it better, help pay for transcription and other stuff, go to patreon.com slash You Are Not So Smart. Pitching in at any amount gets you the show ad-free, but at the higher amounts, you get extra content, posters, t-shirts, sign books, and other stuff. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is by Incompetech. Tell everyone you know about this show. That's the best way to support what's going on here. Just spread the word, share episodes that meant something to you, put it out there. And check back in about two weeks for a fresh new episode.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.